0: The farmer will come in, and I call him the farmer in both books, and say things like, I haven't heard frogs in the background for years, you know? Or, did you notice the ironbarks in the driveway are flowering at a different time? Or, God, there's all that Patterson's curse on that hill. There are very few bees in there. I wonder why that is. That stuff escapes me. The capacity for farmers to observe the landscape is just incredible.
1: Welcome back to Life on the Land, a Grazy Her podcast telling stories of women living in rural and regional Australia. I'm Skye Manson, your host for this episode. As a child, a teenager and even a student, today's guest knew nothing about rural Australia. In fact, she had not a care for life on the land. She went on to become a political journalist in Canberra. And then, our guest today... Gabrielle Chan met the farmer. Her eyes were opened to the daily routine of farming. She observed an intimacy between farmers, nature, and the environment they coexisted upon and within. In the main street of her local community, she gleaned the complexities of culture and the climate. And what she was hearing was such a far cry from the rhetoric being heralded in the halls of parliament. Gabrielle Chan finds herself as a unique kind of commentator, and her newly released book, Why You Should Give a Fuck About Farming, voices these intricacies in a new way. But we start today, as we always do, at the beginning, in Gabrielle's early days as a child in the Sydney suburbs.
0: It depends on what part of my childhood you're talking about. In the early years I grew up in Kuji. I was born in Waverly Hospital. We lived in a little flat. My parents started a family very young. My father had come from Singapore as a Singaporean Chinese migrant university student. And my mum uh, is Anglo. She grew up in Kuji and they met at university. So... An average afternoon in those days would have been, you know, hanging around, playing on the streets of Coogee one block back from the beach, um, spending a lot of time on the beach, on foam surfboards, getting board rash on my stomach. But then once we moved, we moved to the northern suburbs, a place called Bellrose, where a lot of new housing developments, developments were starting. And so the afternoon was on bikes, riding to friends, places, you know, just spent on the streets and in the bush behind our little house, our little project home.
1: So what did your mother and father do for a living and your great grandfather too?
0: So my father is a biochemist. He still works as a biochemist at 80 (laughs) Uh, He has a business now, but for a long time he worked at Sydney Hospital uh, in the lab there. And my mum left uni without completing when we kids were little because she got pregnant at university and then returned to uni to complete her teaching degree and started teaching, but that was probably in our teenage years. So she was essentially a home person when I was in my early childhood and up to my teens and then uh, started teaching later in those teenage years.
1: And what about it? Was it your grandfather or your great-grandfather?
0: My great-grandfather was a journalist. His name was Cliff Graves. He worked for first the Smiths, Smiths Weekly in Adelaide and then moved to um, the Packer Stable uh, and worked uh, as a racing journalist um, a lot of the time. He died when I was about three, but I have a very strong memory of him because he was a larger than life character. But also, you know, at that stage, having a, a Chinese father and an Anglo mother was a really kind of weird phenomenon. Uh, and I guess my great grandfather was very welcoming. Of my father and so I think that stuck with me for a long time his openness compared to other people perhaps who weren't so open
1: was it was it difficult navigating the cultures of the suburbs in and around Sydney at the time and given your um mix of cultural backgrounds
0: oh yeah well it was but you know kids just think everything is normal right so the issues around how people accepted our our cultural backgrounds were just like a part of life and so it was it was raised um, you know by kids in the playground or um, parents as well there were some issues with some of the parents but you know I was just I, I didn't really have a strong memory of um, racism per se like they would Pick out my race as something, the way they would pick out a kid with red hair, you know, and call them something. So, it, my my memory of racial incidents really happened when I got older, when I was a, um, you know, working as a journalist as an adult. That sort of thing. It was it was not so much from those childhood years, although I think maybe my siblings, I don't know, might have had different experiences, but I was. I had a bit of bravado, so maybe I don't know. People uh, treat people differently depending on how much they give back. So I'm so
1: interested to know about in those early childhood years what your conversations were like around your family dinner table, if you had one, um, or I don't know, or and what kind of things you ate and what what the influences on you were
0: uh we we always sat at the dinner table to eat uh we ate a mix a mash-up of the two cultures of our parents so very australian stuff and particularly from my grandmother who i was very close to and i talk about actually in the book her um the how much food and culture is meshed together food is so much more than you know just sustaining you it's a connects to your, your memories and your emotional, um, your, your emotional memories, I guess. And so food was always a big part of our family culture. So everyone gathered around. My father had grown up in Singapore. Uh, he was born in 1940. So he was born in the middle of the war. And the invasion, the Japanese invasion, was a big thing in his childhood memories and so they were really inculcated in eat as much as you can when you can get it because you don't know when you're going to get it and a lot of protein so growing up we had a lot of protein put in front of us like meat was central not only central in a three a meat and three veg way but in you know, if he if he was cooking Chinese dishes, we would have four meat dishes and one vegetable dish. <laughs> it was almost reverse of meat and three veg. And so that was a really strong memory. And also just, you know, bulk, like bulk food, just uh, I think the eating culture came from dad. And, yeah, so and the conversations were all, about all sorts of things. My, my parents are very curious and gave me that curiosity across a range of subjects, politics, economics without talking about economics, all sorts of stuff, Australian cultural stuff. You know, the television shows we were looking at were being pulled apart. Yeah, American TV shows like All in the Family were being pulled apart on, on you know, how how culture was changing how old white working class was changing so all of this stuff was just in the background when when we were growing up and and talked about you know as a matter of course and so I guess that's where I got that interest in the way society works.
1: Mm. Yeah it um, kick-started your, your curiosity do you think because curiosity is such an important part of being a journalist don't
0: you think? Oh, yeah, completely, completely. And it's, it's if you have a bad case of it, it's really <laughs> hard to turn off. Have you My, got a bad case? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm terrible. I'm terrible. My husband always laughs because he just says whenever I talk about anything or someone tells me something, I'm always, oh, that would make a good story. Like how does that work and why, why, why does that happen? And he's just like, it's just a conversation not everything is a story but everything is a story right <laughs> journalists know that it just everything is a is a thread to something else storytelling is humans big big thing that differs from other species so you know that's the way that we relate
1: I'm interested to know in your childhood years though what part of uh, the country play. Did you ever, did you ever visit the country?
0: I had a very big impact visit when I was twelve. I visited a friend's farm. My father used to work with uh, a guy whose family had a farm in Goulburn, and uh, I was thrown on a horse, and the horse bolted, and I'd never. I think I'd had one or two trail rides nearby home and the horse bolted, jumped a dry creek bed, and I fell off, did a major number on myself, you know, broken jaw, split kidney, ruptured spleen. So I was in hospital for a couple of weeks and off school for like a term, I think, from memory, with a goodness. with 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 quite a, a strong pethidine habit habit. <laughs> as a result of the painkilling killers. So, um, yeah, it was, a, it, was a big, it was a big memory in my childhood, but also a, a sort of there's a before and after thing. It was like this, you know, how your life has these little breakages that, that change your life. And I think that was one of those things that was a big memory for me. And so that was my only experience of the country.
1: How did it change your life? What was the breakage?
0: Well, I think it was just because it had such an impact. It was, you know, I was off school for so long. It just, it, was a, it just has been a major memory. And so I've always loved horses. So, of course, when I moved to the country, I started getting interested. I wanted a horse. We had a horse for the kids. But I still had that kind of real nervousness around horses because it was my own experience. So I have one of those electric arses that as soon as I get on a horse, they can feel the tension. And so it was this constant battle to see if I could master this thing, which became like a like a challenge. And really, I never did master
1: it. How could you love horses after that? terrifying experience which it sounds like it almost you were lucky to survive it were you
0: yeah yeah there was actually it was really weird because the weekend I fell off there was another girl that fell off further north in the state that died Mm. and so this whole rumor went around school that you know oh my god capitals died falling off a horse you know so it was yeah it but it's just horses are, are just I just love them. I just love the smell of them. I love the fact I I taught yoga for a long time and I think for me, horses are a a form of yoga because to practice yoga regularly is to understand or have a self-awareness about where your mind and body is at. To be close to a horse is having that reflected back at you. So in other words, you cannot ride a horse unless you've got some shit together if you're in a state like me. Like obviously if you're born on a horse, you can have all sorts of personal problems and still get on a horse and ride and have no trouble. But they're so intuitive that they, I think they kind of reflect back at you any issues that you're, you're working through in your head or your body. And so now I just love them from afar rather than getting on
1: them <laughs> did that experience you know obviously you live on you live on the land now but mm. before now did mm. that experience taint your vision of living in the country
0: no not really
1: and a lot of what you what your writings now are based around is uh food where it comes from and the future of it and and how we, our relationship with farmers. But back then, did you ever have any concept of, of what you talk about now, like where your food came no,
0: from? No, no, not at all. I mean, I knew I knew the steak came from a cow or the, you know, the wheat, the wheat and the bread, but I never put it together. Like I, I wasn't interested. Yeah. There was nothing interesting to me as a city person in rural life, rural people, rural culture, it just wasn't interesting to me until I moved here Um, and then it became so interesting to me. But I was still looking east. I was still looking to the press gallery. I was still looking, thinking about what I'd lost in terms of my career instead of what I'd gained.
1: Do you think that that makes your commentary much easier because you do understand what it's like to... Not be ignorant, but just to, to just to consume your food and not think about where it comes from.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's. I think my work in the last decade or so has been about how you bridge that gap between a metropolitan uh, population that uh, consumes the product that a rural pop- a, a part of the rural population grows, and. Also, the political divide between those two constituencies is how I started that conversation. So the first book, Rusted Off, was about, you know, why rural and regional areas were changing the way sometimes, the way they vote, why those electorates were becoming more unpredictable in the way they vote from a history of very predictable voting patterns, and... I'd heard a lot of commentary about, you know, dumb country people, stupid people, don't know, I don't understand, you know, vote along the same lines over all the time. All of those, you know, tropes about negative tropes about rural people, like how to understand and how to explain just what is a different culture. And the interesting thing is it's not all negative either. Like you see huge support in metropolitan areas every time there's a drought, you know, people are knitting lamb jumpers and um, donating money and donating goods to people right through every single drought. So there's this weird kind of disjointed conversation partly because of a... Of a Um, lack of understanding but also underlying it i think there is this intuitive thing in a lot of humans that you know okay this is an important industry i'm talking about farming here and food production specifically there is something fundamental about it but we don't know how to think about it and we don't know what we want from it and so it just kind of drifts along in policy terms
1: What's your solution to that? Such a big question.
0: I oh, know, it's a massive question. Like um, I'm really silly for raising these big questions in, in the sense that, you know, everyone always says, so what's the solution? <laughs> Which is a fair enough question. Absolutely. The issues that I worked through in the latest book came out of And this is a long version of the answer to that problem, and I don't claim to have all the solutions. But I wanted to really look at farming and think about what the economic signals are. So in my life as a journalist, I'd grown up as a baby journalist in the 80s, so I'd watched my first real government that I'd watched was the Hawke-Keating government uh, and then the, the sort of subsequent governments and we went through this whole kind of deregulation agenda and i hadn't noticed it much for farming but but the latest book is a process of looking back and thinking about okay how did all those changes happen and how did they affect farming and i think that what i discovered was that there is no interconnected policy in terms of um, how farming is impacted by these major, major world problems. So farming sits at the intersection of climate change, you know, soil loss, water shortages, uh, energy production increasingly, uh, given land is required for renewables and things like that. Um, health, the health of, of products that we grow. All of these issues are really connected deeply with farming and we have no interconnected policy. Um, I wanted to explain what how farming requires trade-offs. So I think part of the problem is that we have these siloed arguments between, on the one hand, we talk about policy for the environment. On the other hand, we talk about policy for agriculture as if the two aren't deeply connected. So I wanted to really make policy... Uh, thinkers and politicians and people think about how those two things are connected that humans have an impact on landscape it's not lock up the solution to climate change by some is to just lock it all up as if and throw away the key as if you would keep it in a glass case you can't do that humans need to live on land human needs humans need to eat from land so the problem out of that is there's this constant kind of requirement for cheaper food, cheaper food, the way farmers get a pay rise is to create cheaper goods, shave production costs off because we're price takers. We don't, we don't set the price like we do for like Apple does for an iPhone. We take the price. We have to take the price unless we're doing something very specific like value adding, going into the processing in. So the cost of food currently doesn't take into account the cost to the environment. So you get people who are worried in the cities about climate change and why don't those farmers do this and why are they irrigating that? And then they're eating the product that the irrigator is growing or they're eating the product. They want the loaf of bread for $4 or $5. They don't want to pay for the cost to look after the environment as well as grow the wheat because the cost of wheat, the price of wheat does not include the cost to improving soil carbon, for example. So who's going to pay for that? Someone has to pay for that. It's either the farmer, it's either the worker on the farm or it's the eater or or it's all three. At the moment, it's not being paid for and that has implications for the environment. And then the other thing... The other point I think that I get that came out of the book is just the move to scale and the move to um, the hollowing out of small and mid-sized family farms, which is a big issue, I think, and which we never hear governments really talk about. They talk about mums, they want mums and dad farmers in droughts, but they also talk about how can we get large corporate agriculture into australia how can we get um, big scale investment into farming and those two things are contradictory right and i'm not saying all corporate farming is bad by any stretch but i'm saying if you want to keep diversity of land ownership you're going to have to think about how that what sort of policy is going to allow that like do we just keep going the way we're going and then the farms get bigger and bigger and eventually you go from 80,000 farms down to 800 farms? I don't think that would be a good thing. Mm. Uh, but maybe Australia might decide, no, I, I, I really want cheap food. And so I'm happy for Australian farms to be owned by 800 owners. They might say that. And, you know, it's probably it's probably beyond my lifetime. I'm 55, so, you know, I could sort of ride off into the sunset, not on a horse, but, you know, you know what I mean? Like it's sort of it's next generation problems in the sense that you could turn around and see the landscape change in 10 years. But I think governments should be thinking about it now and I think farmers should be thinking about it now.
1: What do you think about the... Australia is so um, welded on to the, the farming family, you know, for better or for worse, they might love it or they may think that they're, you know, a bunch of complainers who are starting to do things badly for the environment. But um, if you go down that path that you're talking about, about corporate agriculture and um, imp- producing food on a bigger scale more cheaply, Um, yeah, what's the risk of, like, how important, through through your lens, how do you think Australians value their love of the farming family and that cultural connection to that?
0: I think there is a portion who value it. I think if you came out of a um, migrant family like me the picture is more mixed because either you don't have a connection with it or or you do have a connection but you don't really understand it and sometimes you might not be welcomed. There's, I think there's a sense that country communities don't welcome migrants, which I don't think is completely true, but I think there's this kind of separation. Um, I think generally Australia likes the idea of having the family farm but I'm not sure that they would pay more to maintain a certain family farm. And we've got to be clear about definitions here, and definitions are really, really fraught because there are some family farms that are as big as any big corporate. You know, there are family farms that own masses of land. Is Gina Reinhardt a family farm? Mm. Her family bought the farms and she continues to buy farms. You know, some of those definitions are really tricky. So I. I it does I'm, allow
1: for a connection. If you, you know, a family farm gives you a visual of a person. And so it does, that doesn't strengthens it? A certain connection.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and the interesting thing to me is like as, as corporates go into farming more and more and you see food produced using family farm images, like the SBC can of tomatoes, I think it's SBC or Admona, they're the same company, they use a picture of uh, a guy same age as my husband, and the next generation down and they're, you know, the blah-blah family, I've forgotten the name of them, Um, and they're in the traditional farm garb with the blue shirt on, the blue work shirt, and that is a specific tug of the heartstring to the person who identifies and likes to think that their food is grown by their family farm. Now, that company is not a family company but they're not using the picture of the CEO in a suit on the can of tomatoes. They are specifically using that family farm image to sell those tomatoes. Mm. So, you know, there is some, yeah, there is something there that there is a sympathy and empathy for family farmers, but, our policy is contradictory around this stuff yet. And, and it may be the solution, you know, there is no solution because how do you intervene in a market and say, okay, this is a family farm we want to keep. This is not a family farm we want to keep, you know, if it gets to a certain size or scale. And and so I think some of the complexity too is around, you know, we're moving into a, a policy scenario where, Farmers might be paid for environmental outcomes. Well, if you've got massive scale, you can afford to do a whole lot of stuff environmentally and be paid for for be paid for it by private companies that the smaller to mid-sized family farm m- might not be able to do. So these are really complex issues that that are global world problems and. The bottom line of what I'm saying is, like, we've got to be thinking about them because the landscape is changing pretty quickly.
1: We'll be back with Gabby in just a moment. But now, a word from today's sponsor. Applications are now open for the 2023 scholarships and bursaries to one of Australia's largest boarding school communities, the King's School. The King School has a proud history of educating generations of students from regional Australia in a learning landscape that is nurturing and inclusive. Across 490 acres, borders live, learn and grow in an environment where challenge and adventure foster healthy risk appetites and exceptional character development. Applications are open now for scholarships and bursaries at the two King's School campuses the Secondary School in Parramatta, Sydney and for the Tudor House Campus which accommodates boarding girls and boys from years three to six. Find out more at kings.edu.au where you can put in your application or find out more by signing up to one of the specialised Q&A webinars on their website. kings.edu.au When you walk down your main street of your hometown of Harden, how do you describe, what's your definition of a farmer?
0: That's a hard question.
1: But everybody has their own definition in their own mind, but I think yours would be so interesting because it comes from your background, you're new, you've got new fresh eyes.
0: Yeah. A farmer comes from agriculture. And agriculture, the Latin word, comes from cultivating land. So to me, being a landscape manager is a central part of being a farmer, and so I don't see that as an as a occupation that you would undertake in a lab, though you might undertake it in a small veggie patch or, a, or an urban vertical farm if you're using soil. Everything's complex in my mind. (laughs) Sorry. But knowing what you know now,
1: you know that there is such a strong emotional connection between the farmer and their land. What, What surprised you about that?
0: I think that's true in some cases and not in others. Like I think some people can be dispassionate about their land and sell it on and increasingly that's a way for farmers to make money because capital gain is better in land prices right now is better than any production, any production return that you get. Um, But that aside, um, I think the thing that surprised me, and I talk about it with great affection in the book, is this capacity of farmers to see their landscape and know their landscape intimately, particularly if they've been on it for a while and to be so deeply connected to the cycles, the natural cycles of, well, nature's cycles, right? So the example I give in the book is like I, pri- I, I don't call myself a farmer because I'm not. I'm a writer. I'm a journalist, right? I just hang out with a farmer. So the farmer will come in, and I call him the farmer in both books, the farmer will come in and say things like, I haven't heard frogs in the background for years, you know. Or did you notice the ironbarks in the driveway are flowering at a different different time? Or, um, God, there's all that Patterson's curse on that hill and there are very few bees in there. I wonder why that is. And, like, I, that stuff escapes me. The capacity for farmers to observe the landscape is just incredible. The, the way that um, they can look at a flock of sheep and go, Do you see that one with the gammy leg? No, they all look like sheep to <laughs> you me. Know, I didn't grow up with that observation. But the, that capacity to um, pick out the difference, it's like those old Spot the Difference cartoons that we used to do as kids, you know, it's what these things look all quite similar compared to growing up in a city landscape where you, everything's moving, everything's changing all the time. There's all this bright stuff in your face, but the signs on the bus stop are moving, revolving, cars are going past, like lots of different people. But the quietness of working in the landscape and noticing those tiny little changes, I think, is just Awesome in the original sense of the word, not the teenage sense of the word. Like just mind-blowing to me.
1: I love the way that you have explained that because perhaps there are so many farmers that don't realise how unique and awesome, as you say, that skill is. It's just what they do. It's Um, so
0: different. And the the thing that I think the, the political lesson out of that for me is that I hear debates all the time about climate change and what farmers are doing or not doing. And there's a lot of people who don't really understand that part about a farmer who might be saying, you know, you're raping and pillaging the landscape, you're doing, you know, you're not doing things right, you shouldn't be using chemical a b or c you shouldn't be doing that and so whether a farmer is husbanding their land in a good way or a bad way is sort of by is is a separate issue if you tell a farmer that they don't know their landscape they will be deeply offended because a lot of the time they're connected into that stuff so the way to approach the argument is not to say, you know, you're just raping the environment. It's to, it's to have more, more nuance about, okay, what are the trade-offs you have to make in the way that I want you to grow food and am I prepared to pay for those trade-offs? Because everything is a trade-off in farming, right? Everything is a trade-off in landscape whether it's farming, whether it's Indigenous land management pre-1788, I take that kangaroo, I burn that area, whatever it is, slashing the Amazon rainforest in return for beef, all of these things are trade-offs. And I think we need some more of that nuance and understanding about people who live and work on landscape.
1: How do you suggest that people step into this idea of the greater connection and understanding with their their food and their farmers
0: uh, read my book <laughs> 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 um, I, I think it's it's understanding where you, where your food comes from right reading labels in the supermarket yes yeah? so um, understanding where that food comes from understanding, how how it, how it is grown, or making a better attempt to understand how it is grown. Um, and, and what you does know, that I
1: look use, like, like really practically to you?
0: Because it's right. So so um, what you buy makes a difference. Uh, the way that you engage with policy debates uh, in a political sense. Don't yell at people. Um, is a good start uh just really really going back to um you know you see a lot of of talk about people who engage with farmers markets for example that's a certain segment of markets right there's a lot of medium-sized producers who don't have the time and have almost too much scale they're not going to drag their lambs frozen and processed around their farmers' markets to tell the story. So it's, it's really educating yourself on how, how farming is done and then supporting, hopefully, if you have a capacity financially to support products that you value.
1: I'm just so interested, to, does it surprise you? Like how have you ended up here from your very suburban upbringing that had nothing to do with agriculture or where food came from. And now look where you are and what you're advocating for.
0: Yeah. I mean, my, my, my husband always jokes, you know, like if you married a lawyer, you'd be writing about how, you know, broken the legal system is. <laughs> or you know, if you married a mechanic, you'd be talking about fuel imports or something like that. And uh, it, to a certain extent it's true in that I think I could have dropped into any environment and, and tried to put it together. But, I mean, it, it's incredibly surprising to me that I'm here, where I am now, but it's, it's incredibly surprising to my family, I have to say, who just kind of scratch their heads and go, how did she become so passionate about this? But it just, you know, like farming is just so interesting to me. It just is, I pull this thread on a farm and I go, I'm going to write a book on farming. And I discover that I get into ev- literally every single area in the world, every single problem in the world, every single solution, climate amelioration. You know, landscape can have a big impact on that. Food, like it's food, it's... It's just every area is of, is, has some connection to farming. I mean, I think you could do a quiz show and just throw subjects, like random subjects, find me the connection between farming and blah, and you would find a connection. Mm. So that remains intensely interesting to me. And I hope that other people can see in my journey why it could be interesting to them no matter where they are.
1: I admire the fact that you have um, taken on this sort of this cause without having had a lifetime on a farm. Um, Is that something that you're conscious of?
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. And And I'm conscious that a lot of people, you know, with the last book, too, you know, was called Rusted Off, Why Country People Are Fed Up, and I'm sure there were a lot of people going, what would she know about country people? She's only been here for 25 years. Um, and that's fair enough. They can have their opinion. But I just feel like that sometimes an outsider can bring other stuff. You know, that stuff we were talking about nature and the way farmers observe, when I talk to the farmer about that stuff, he goes, "Like." Why is that even interesting to you? Because that's the way he lives. It's Mm. not, it's so ingrained in him that he doesn't see it as normal. Mm. And, or for example, you know, and farmers might relate to this, you know, you get someone, a new employee or someone on the place and they get bogged in a certain spot. And the first thing the farmer always says is, geez, how could he not see that that was a boggy spot? And I say to him, he hasn't lived here for 60 years, Mm. 65 years. Why would he know? I mean, Mm. obviously, if it's a low spot, he would know. But, you know, there are certain they don't know what they know. Mm. They underestimate what they know always because it's just what he grew up with. If you grew up like your daughter chasing sheep, she'll know so much about sheep that she doesn't even know she knows. You know, it's just part of her life, part of her world. And I think that the value of an outsider coming in is going, that's really amazing. (laughs) You know, these are the 15 reasons why it's amazing. And this is the 15 reasons why people outside might find it amazing. Told in a different way.
1: We haven't even touched on your career in Canberra, in the press gallery, but... Just on the back of that question, when did you know that those things were amazing and that they had currency and that they would cut through and they weren't just things that were amazing to you?
0: Does that make sense? Uh, Yeah, yeah, it does. It does. When I, uh, in sort of post-2010, so it took me a long time. I'm a slow learner. So and tell
1: me within that question then when you actually moved to the farm and how long you've been in the press gallery at that, t- that stage.
0: So I moved to the farm in 1996. I'd been in, I'd just moved to the Canberra Press Gallery in 95 after the, I was at State Parliament in Macquarie Street up to 95 so um, my life is lived via election. So, the 95 New South Wales election, Bob Carr came to power. We'd been seeing each other for a long time. So, I thought, oh, well, Canberra is closer to the farm. Um, and so, and I was interested in Canberra anyway, in politics. And so, I moved down there. 96, I moved back, but was still commuting. Um, we started family in 97. And 96 is that kind of Pivotal point in politics where Pauline Hanson, Mark one comes to parliament. The first time people start thinking about why is this woman saying these things? And they were, they were things that I was hearing at some dinner parties in some barbecues around the district. So it was obviously resonating. So that was like my ears pricked up then. Maybe this is like a bigger story but I was still focused on the same stories everyone else was chasing in politics. And then as my kids grew, I went through the childcare, well, start with can't can't give birth in my own local hospital, um, kids going into early childhood, large socio-demographic. You see the poorest people, you see the richest people, as opposed to city suburbs where you're, Demographic is by postcode. You usually go to the school with the same demographic, similar aspirations. In in country towns, you see everyone, mm. um, and gradually, like that, as these life stages where you enter into these um, real life that throws back policy issues if you're looking at it with political eyes. So you know why are people having um, conversations on the main street about the building of school halls in the global financial crisis it makes no sense to people that they build one school hall next to another school hall when actually what they might need is six teachers aid aids in the classroom in a, every class you know one in each class in a in a school of six classes would have done so much more but as that policy it's the difference between macro economic policy and micro and the way people view it from the street. And that became an incredibly interesting question. And I think so 2010 is where you start to see changes um, around all of these issues. Rural communities start to be more unpredictable in the way they're voting and I'm sitting on this political story thinking, holy shit, I keep looking at the press gallery and looking at the stories they're chasing. I'm actually sitting on the best, biggest story ever in global politics. Brexit happens. Trump happens. It's all off the back of insiders versus outsiders, (coughs) metropolitan versus regional and rural. All of these stories are breaking around the world, and I'm like, "Duh, God, what a story!"
1: And so, what does that look like for you in the press gallery when you say, when you tell them about this story? Um, are they more accepting of it? Do they understand it more? Um, is the vocab there now where where it wasn't before?
0: Yeah, definitely, definitely, and and to a certain extent, you know, I had I was lucky to have. Uh, political editors at the guardian who really understood it and particularly Catherine Murphy who grew up in Tamworth so she came from a rural culture and so that was she she really understood it uh, emphatically in a way uh, that because she had grown up in a country town so she had the reverse situation to me she moved to the city from a rural town i went the other way and mm. so together we kind of um we i talk to her a lot about these, these issues because she understands the culture
1: in ending tell me a little bit about your life on your farm and what you love to do there
0: <laughs> i love to be annoying i love to walk <laughs> i love to walk around the farm and I've recently got a bike so I've been riding around the farm but I keep getting bloody cat's heads so I keep getting flat tyres. <laughs> um, but I've got dogs, a uh, walk around and I'm trying to learn the skills of observation from the farmer that we talked about. Like I'm really trying to focus on the changes uh, and really see the landscape in a different way um, in a more, in a more aware way. Uh, so there's that um, try, just trying to learn, just trying to learn. For a long time I, d- I wasn't sort of into, you know, the cropping cycles and the, and the real kind of granular detail around sheep and, and, and um, the natural cycles. And so I'm trying to learn that um, around the farm a lot more uh yeah so just just observing um and trees you know i've got favorite trees around the joint and trying to learn the different species um so yeah just connecting better i think
1: maybe trees are a good place for anyone to start um i wanted to ask do you do you ever get time in the yards or in the tractor
0: I don't get time in the tractor I don't think he'd let me near near his tractors um but uh I do get occasionally I spend some time in the yards occasionally when he needs help um but uh I tell a story in the (laughs) I'm probably finished with this story um in the book and we did try to work early on together and he's got this um these old concrete silos flat bottom silos and sort of said to me oh why don't you just jump in there the ladder's a bit rickety you're lighter it's probably be better I just need you to shovel some moldy grain out of the bottom of the silo you know that been sitting there for a long time and so you know he discovered what it was to be married to a commentator get in there you know like holy shit, how long have you been doing this like this? This is a bloody stupid situation. Like how much of your infrastructure is this outdated and blah and blah and blah. He was just, all I could hear on the outside was him walking around the outside of the silo, mumbling Jesus Christ and, you know, oh, my God, I'm going to do it next time myself. And so, you know, we, we sort of took decisions early on to work in separate fields and I think it sort of, I know it works for a lot of couples to work together but like I quite like having something at the end of the day having separate experiences at the end of the day like I'm in awe of those couples that work really well as a partnership in a business and 24-7 but like for me I'm just so passionate about telling stories that that's what I want to do like just make my writing better make the stories better um, and and just bring more stuff to People who wouldn't necessarily see it.
1: Well, Gabriella Chan, I so hope your book cuts through, and it's been fascinating to chat with you. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Guy. Was pleasure. These
1: kind of people. The Gabrielle Chans, who bring a fresh mind and fresh eyes to farming, are so good for rural Australia. They see and appreciate the things that we as farmers take for granted. And given the right platform, I think they can communicate these things so much better than those who are entrenched in the day-to-day grind of the profession that's agriculture. Thank you for tuning in today. Thank you to today's sponsor, The King School. The spring edition of Grazy Her is still on sale at good news agencies and shops close to you. And at grazyher.com.au, if you subscribe for two to three years, you'll receive a special gift, a pair of Peggy and Twig earrings. grazyher.com.au We'll be back next week with another Life on the Land story.